lot of the people who joined because of Jeremy, the younger Momentum members and people who joined, I think haven't quite caught on to the fact yet that the party's actually in, in control, really, even though Jeremy's still still there, of, of um, people who have lost their roots, I mean, have lost the feeling of what Labour Party was about. And if it's not about actually helping and supporting and working with people who are, at, in many areas, at the bottom of the pile, what is the point? Hello and welcome to Confessions. My name's Giles Fraser and this is the podcast where we talk to well-known interesting people and try and sort of drill down into their core beliefs, work out what they're all about and uh, have an interesting chat. And I'm here with Kate Howie, MP, who's been MP for Vauxhall for 30 years and has just in the last few weeks said she's not standing again. Welcome. Thank you. <laughs> Very nice to have you here. Now, the way we tend to have these conversations is we start by having a chat about where you grew up and um, something about your background and your folks and all that sort of stuff. So paint a picture for me about about your, your family home. Well, uh, I was brought up in a very small farm, 21 acres in uh, County Antrim, Northern Ireland. Uh, very idyllic sort of childhood in the sense that I spent all my time with my sister, who was nearly two years older than me, outdoors, you know, climbing trees, catching fish in the river, tiddlywinks, uh, generally getting my knee cut because I fell an awful lot, apparently. Um, and just having that uh, wonderful freedom, which you have when you live in the country. Uh, we were quite a long way from our nearest neighbour and played with their children. But on the whole, you, you grew up knowing that you had to make your own fun and enjoyment. Wonderful mum and dad. My mum just died two years ago, 96, oh, in the 96th year. And um, my father died when he was 89. Neither of them had been formally educated in the sense of, um, you know, university, but my father read a lot. Uh, my mother, and they're both very musical. They sang in the choir and my father played the violin. And my mother... Um, was very proud of the fact that she got into the civil service, you know, took civil service exams and went to work in London for a year or so just before the war broke out. And then when war broke out, she came back. So she'd always this wonderful talk to me about London and, you know, how much she'd enjoyed that time. And um, a very Christian home, um, Sunday school every Sunday afternoon, church every Sunday morning. Um, and, you know, really... I sort of quite a lot of work as well because I would do things like um, bring some little pigs into the world. I would uh, know all about the hens. I would, uh, the horse, we had a horse, but he was only really a horse to pull out the manure from the hen houses. And I would. Uh, so, what was the main thing you were farming? What, what were your parents farming? Well, it was mainly in, in those kind of small holdings. It was pigs mainly, um, hens, um, you know, a couple of cows just for our own sort of use. Um, and very much organic before the word was ever mentioned. Everything was outdoors. You know, the pigs would be out in the morning and would they would decide when they wanted to come in because they'd come to the gate and just shake it and make such a lot of noise. And every pig would know its own house and it was wonderful. And I, 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 I also grew up with that knowing that they were going to be killed and that hens were going to be killed because that was part of how we would get money to live. Um, but at the same time, very, very conscious of, of, you know, animal cruelty, all of that thing, just taken for granted. And also things like now it makes me so, in it's so interesting how people are now saying about, oh, farmers must, you know, make sure they leave bits around the hedge, hedges empty and all of that. We did all that. You know, there was so much natural kind of attention to the countryside and to the environment, but it wasn't known as that and it wasn't called conservation it was just the way you did it so it was a really lovely lovely childhood country went, girl went to the local primary school which was a one teacher school um and then thrilled my parents of course because uh, they obviously wanted us to do very well my sister qualified got the 11 plus went to belfast royal academy and uh, i did as well and apparently i was you know they have all this thing about qualifying exams and how everyone's terrified my sister was quite nervous when she went you had to go in three or four miles to do the test and apparently i was really excited and saying oh i'm going to meet people i'm going to meet people so um went to grammar school bra wonderful grammar school and part of my reason for always being protective of sort of grammar schools is that i know that without that grammar school education i probably never would have done what i did because you were meeting um people from 
some of the richest people in Belfast were there. Some of the, you know, people from all backgrounds. And it was a really mixing um, community. And of course, you were expected to do well academically, but brilliantly done at sport as well, which is where I got my interest and had always been quite keen on sport. You're a high jumper. Yes, and my father had made me a little high jump thing in the back, one of the back fields with, you know, two poles and a stick and nails in it and you would go out and practice. But, you know, it was, you didn't have, you had a very hard landing, (laughs) which of course, even when I was competing then and went on to the Ulster College of Physical Education, we did, we had sand pits, horrible how hard sand pits. I'm amazed I'm still walking. <laughs> what was the highest you could jump? Can you um, remember? I, yes, I, I um, just just over, I can't even put it into metres, just over five feet, which at the time there was the world record was five foot eight and a half inches, which these days is like peanuts. For oh, is it? Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's moved is that, on. Do so, you yeah, go backwards no, over? No, I, no I, did, um, I did the straddle. There was the straddle and the western roll and the Fosbury flop hadn't been hadn't been um, uh, invented, but of course you couldn't have done the Fosbury flop into the kind of sand pits we were going into. And then I went to PE college, uh, qualified as a PE teacher. Was very involved in sort of student politics there, and we used to hitchhike into Belfast for the big debates at Queens. And decided that I didn't want to teach full time PE and that I wanted to go on and take a degree. So then I came to London, taught physical education in an East End school for two years, you know, while I was studying and that paid my way. So how do you go from country girl, I imagine slightly small c conservative values in terms of, I'm I'm imagining so you can set me right if I'm wrong, but you know, those sorts of farming type of two early years being quite a proper left, hardcore lefty. Well, my, my my parents were both interested in politics, my father in particular, and uh, there was a Northern Ireland Labour Party at that time, and I joined it when I was at school. Um, the, uh, in, the National Labour Party didn't kind of bring Northern Ireland in, which I think if they had at the time, it would have been much more sensible. Um, and so I was interested in that, and I suppose I got c- quite involved in, in the civil rights movement uh, in terms of... Um, rights for people, you know, wanting people to all have the same uh, rights. And although I think some of it now is exaggerated, there was a lot of, um, uh, you know, sectarianism and people not getting houses because they weren't living in the right area. And I, I got involved in, in some of that kind of um, the People's Democracy marches and so on. Um, but when I came to London, um, I, at first it was student politics and you know, the more interesting people were on the left, I suppose, to be honest. Um, I got uh, involved a bit with the International Marxist Group. There was the International Socialist and International Marxist Group. And I always say, the, I think the International Marxist Group had the, um, the best looking men, <laughs> <laughs> more interesting men. I mean, people like Tariq Ali was, you know, the great sort of hero at that time. Uh, so I, I got involved in student politics and became, got elected onto the National Union of Students vice president when Jack Straw was president, uh, very much um, student politics in those days was all about democracy within the universities and colleges. You know, I mean, when I look back on some of the place things that they went on strike for, the sit-ins were all about taking control of the university. Um, it was quite... Uh, and then I, I, I suppose I was... I saw myself on the left. I, 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 I assumed I was a Marxist. I'm not sure that I really, really understood it all in the sense of being a, a driven Marxist. Um, and then when I finished and started into f- teaching and further education, I joined the Labour Party in 19, I think it was about 1978. So you mentioned you mentioned sectarianism in Northern Ireland. So ha- did the Troubles uh, impact you in, in your Antrim Well, farmhouse? the worst of it hadn't started when I left f- um, for uh, England. Um, because they really, the early 70s was the worst time and I'd, I'd, I'd finished at PE College in 1967. But you know, where we lived, of course, we were very much, you really didn't, when I would be coming back home, uh, you wouldn't be in touch by it at all when you were in your own home. Um, but you would listen, you know, you'd hear in the news every night a certain bomb had gone off, so many people had been killed. It It, it became almost... Oh, right, another bomb. Oh, where was it? You know, and there was a sort of almost an acceptance that this was just going on and on and on. My parents were not sectarian in any way, and I, I grew up very much um, 
you know, we were proud to be British and I was pro-union later on, although at a certain stage in my early life, I, you know, the time of all the civil rights movement, I was very, uh, very interested in, in all the, the, the um, discussions about Irish uh, republicanism. But in the end, once the civil rights movement was kind of taken over by the violent extreme and, and, and by Republicans who really were prepared to kill to get a United Ireland, I, I moved away from that. And when I came to England, it was, was very much... Although I did go on the big anti-internment march in, in London um, when after the shootings in, in uh, Stroke City, Derry, London, Derry. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, um, but when I came to England, of course, at that time, it was quite difficult being a Northern Ireland um, Protestant pro-union because you were kind of looked on as everybody if, thought you were part of the Orange yeah, Lodge or yes, something like that. It was a sort of, and no one really understood <clears throat> the history of the Orange Order or the culture or any of the you know the remarkable things that had gone on in the past, where in country areas, Catholic farmers would come and help so that the Protestant farmers could go off on the Orange Marches. I mean, that really did Do you still happen. Think there's, I mean, there's still a bit of a prejudice about Protestants in Northern Ireland, isn't there? The moment you mention... Well, I mean, the, the way in which, whatever you think about their politics, the DUP, the moment the moment you mention that, there's a sort of, like, explosion of rage you often get. Yes, um, I, I think one of the saddest things for me is the complete lack of understanding of, of Northern Ireland and, and the history, other than being seen through the eyes of what was a very clever um, Republican PR machine. I mean, they're just so much better. I mean, unionists tend to be uh, people who just get on with their life and uh, they, they don't play the game with the media. I remember lots of my friends who were in the in a media journalists and would be going over in the in the 80s and so on. And they would say, oh, it's absolutely hopeless trying to talk to anyone from the unionist side because they don't want anything to do with us, you know. Whereas Sinn Féin and the IRA people would embrace the media and you'll find that nearly all the BBC journalists now who were over there uh, came back very kind of instilled with the idea that somehow all the good was on the Republican side and even though they were killing more people uh, and that these were nasty Protestants who just wanted to sort of hold on to something that wasn't really theirs. I imagine you have views about uh, your current leader and his relationship to... uh well, that's that is the one area that I would. I, I mean, international views. His his international views. I would be very very critical of. I mean, other than obviously against the Iraq War and um, trying to you know get make sure that we don't have other other wars. But in terms of Ireland, it, it, he had a very romanticised idea of Ireland, as as most of the Labour Party. I mean, I, the one good thing that Tony Blair not maybe necessarily the one good thing, but one of the one of the really good things that Tony Blair did was when he became leader, he changed the policy on, on, on Northern Ireland. So rather than the Labour Party policy under people like Kevin McNamara, which was um, we will, you know, campaign for a united Ireland, he changed that policy to we will um, go along with the wishes of the people of Northern Ireland. And if until such time as they decide they wish to be part of United Ireland we will um, accept that they are, you know, it's part of the United Kingdom. But you're, you're, you're very difficult to put in a box politically, aren't you? I know, and I you? love you... that. <laughs> no, I mean... It, you people, confuse people. people. People do because they, you know, they you, it's very simplistic these days. I think even more so than 20 years ago, you know, you're either left or you're right. And, and of course, so, on, on many um, issues, I would be seen as quite left-wing and I've always been a supporter of the trade union movement. I've worked very closely with the, the uh, what was the old UCW, the Communication Workers Union. Um, I've, I've had a, a, a support for trade unionism um, much, much more and not in any way like, you know, having the, the, the attitudes that lots of conservatives would have to trade unions. And then on other issues, I'd be seen as, as I suppose, right wing. And of course, the whole Brexit thing has has just completely, um, you know, destroyed any. We'll, we'll come to that. In a yeah, but about right <laughs> yes, and left. Yes, you know? of course. And, uh, but what's that? So if so, to try and understand the sort of core of what um, politically gets you up in the morning, you know, that's driven oh, it, you to be. What's 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 at the heart of it? So, well, it it is. It's, it's always the usual glib thing about you know wanting to make things better for people, and you really do. And I, but I've found that so much as my time as an MP. So much of my making things better for people meant you had to challenge all the time and you had to challenge your own party and my own council, which was a very, very 
um, strange council when I first got elected. Um, but, you know, it told me that I wasn't to meet the police, for example, my local party. Said, you weren't to You mali- mustn't ever meet the police because they're racist. This was 30 years ago. That was the first thing my general committee told me, which, of course, I ignored. But that was the attitude then in, in, in Lambeth. I mean, some of it was was because of what had happened uh, in, in, in the riots and so on. But there was... A, a, it wasn't usually, ironically... Uh, members of the party from the black community that were saying that. It was the kind of uh, people who'd come to live in London perhaps more recently and and white, you know, middle class people telling me that. I also was told not that I couldn't get new lighting in uh, a lovely conservation area down in Stockwell because they they wanted to keep their lovely lighting. And Lambeth was saying, no, if we're going to pay for this, we're putting in our normal street lighting and conservation areas weren't seen the same way then. And I wrote and said, this is because they were going to pay the extra. So I said, you know, this sounds a great idea. We, They will pay the extra that costs the, the residents. And I got the letter back saying, um, we're not in favour of elitist lighting. <laughs> Honestly, and that that is elitist lighting. lighting, You see, and there was this sort of thing about everybody bringing everybody down to the same uh, level. Well, then, um, you know, that changed. I fought back because the part, you know, it was it was quite a strange uh, GC. I would go along and be, you know. So you, so you're, so how you became uh, MP for Vauxhall? There's there's controversy about that, isn't Mm -hmm. there? So that was the people will say that you were parachuted in. well, I, I was one of five people in the end that were interviewed. Uh, the GC, the general committee, wouldn't accept any of us and wanted to have uh, one or two people particularly on. The, and they, when it came to the voting that night and the, the meeting where we all went down to, um, they refused to accept the shortlist, thinking that the party would go away then. And But the by-election um, had to be held and uh, we were all taken back up to... Parliament and um, a panel, Joan Lester, Tom Sawyer, group of um, Roy Hattersley, interviewed all five of us and, and I was I was selected. I had fought Dulwich just quite nearby in um, 1987 and lost by 130 votes. So I, I and I um, so I so there was then a, the local party activists said we're not getting involved in this election, this by-election. Labour had lost three by-elections in a row in London, the Greenwich one, the Fulham, and Vauxhall became a kind of um, really crucial one because they knew that if they lost it, it was something like a 7,000 majority. It would be bad. So a, a lot of people came obviously down from Central Party. But then what we discovered was, uh, because I stood very much on the platform that, you know, the council, I will, I will stick up for local people even if it is a Labour council, whatever, people matter more than the politics of the council. And it, that, it brought a lot of the people in the Labour Party who dropped out, came back in a bit. And we, um, I was, I was, then there were two black candidates stood. Um, and I, I remember going around the first couple of days to doors thinking, oh dear, you know, when, when someone from a, an Afro-Caribbean community opened the door, you'd be thinking, oh, what are they going to say? Go away, I don't... But, you know, it was just not like that. And it was wonderful. And both um, both um, of the two black candidates got sort of, one got 100 and one got 80. And, and my majority went up, which was very, very unusual for a by-election where the sitting MP, Stuart Holland, had decided to leave voluntarily and go off to work in the European Institute. So that was, uh, and that was the most difficult time because for the next two years, really, I would go along to the big general meetings and you would be being attacked all the time. And I got advice, two different bits of advice from people in um, my, in, in Parliament saying, one said, and I'm not going to get name who they are because it is quite interesting, one said, look, just go along to the meetings and if they say it's raining today, you agree, even if it's the most wonderful sun, <laughs> you know, just go along and you know, agree with them and it'll be, you'll have a much easier time. And the other one said, no, you must start from the beginning just saying you're not going to do this or you don't like, you don't agree with it. And I chose the latter and... Um, after a while, a lot more people came back in who'd been away from the party and uh, it then became almost too much after about 20 years, very much 15 years. So it became a very um, progress Tony Blair party. 
Um, and it still is in the sense that there's a very strong group of progress supporting Tony Blair, Blairites, and a very growing number of people who would uh, affiliate with Momentum. And so there's lots of battles going on there for control. And me leaving now means that they can all hundreds of them fight out to be the next MP, which I'm looking forward to watching. How do you, So how do you... I, d- I don't know how you do it, actually. I mean, I don't know how... I mean, this is a personal type of question uh, rather than a political question. It's just t- to be to be sort of... I mean, I suppose it's got worse over Brexit, but to, to have a sort of, you know, the aggro, the constant aggro, where do you park that, Kate? What- well, I think, I think what... What helps is I spent a lot of my time because my constituency is so near Parliament and when other MPs were sort of sitting in having nice evenings, you know, having meals and things, I would be going to the local friends of this group or the, you know, Tenants Association of the Marcel Estate and I got to know all the real kind of activists within the community campaigning and that was so different from Labour Party politics and that was where you really knew that you could make a difference and one of the things that you know I fought all the time was the incredible bureaucracy of, of, of a local authority and of government as well where people never were able to get something done that was so obviously common sense and it would be stopped. But I understand that as a political answer that, yeah. and I understand the strategy oh, personally, of doing you that. Mean, but I, I, mean, I, mean, I mean all of that hassle personally I mean, it must take its toll. It well, just it, it, must. It, 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 there were good times and bad times. It got better and then it would get worse again, And depending on who got elected at the particular GC. I had some very close supportive friends. One of them was Patricia Mobley, who was a great friend of mine. Who was one of the candidates who stood at one of the five original. She became the chairman of Guys and St Thomas's Hospital, a lovely, lovely, wonderful woman who'd been um, the head of sixth form at Pimlico. And she was one of those people who lived in... in um, Kennington, who, you know, I would drop in with probably two or three times a week as I was going up and down. And she was very, very supportive about, you know, being being conscious that you needed to make sure you had some time off now and again, that you, you know, didn't let it get to you. And then other really good people like my agent, who, who'd been my agent for three elections, Kevin Craig, who was always very supportive. And you, you had... I've always made a point of having friends outside politics, you know, outside the political structure. Yeah. So I don't socialise a lot with with other MPs. You know, Frank Field's a great friend and I've um, some of the newer MPs I've, I've got quite friendly with. But I've always kept my little bit of distance. Your from... politics are quite like Frank Field's, aren't they? Yes, I think. I, I, I Yes, I mean, he has done a huge amount of work in terms of work to, to highlight poverty and particularly now the work with children who are young children who are just not getting enough food even in 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 certain areas so he said yeah and I I I but I, I find it difficult when I didn't believe something was the right thing to do to vote for it so I suppose early on I, I became um you know seen as someone who couldn't be quite depended on to always be there when the vote came. Um, uh, but personally, I, um, you know, I still did a bit of sport. I, um, I like to, uh, you know, read a lot. I had a, a, a very good long-term relationship with um, uh, Tom Stoddard, who was a photographer. We had he travelled a lot. I would sometimes meet him in different places, um, and I just, I think, I just. Um, my, my my family background and my parents, um, my father always said to me, and he even said it just as he was dying, you know, make sure, Catherine, because I'm Catherine at home, make sure you always do the right thing. And, you know, there was that sort of feeling that if you felt you were really doing the right thing, it didn't matter if everyone was screaming at you. You didn't like it. And some of it did hurt. And... Um, there would be times when you'd think, how can people be so nasty, you know? Um, but I got on with it. And, but Bre- and Brexit has obviously reignited yes. this and put it on steroids, I guess. Well, absolutely. Although I had always made it clear from kind of day one almost that I was very anti the European Union and I always had something in my manifesto that made it a little bit clear. Um, I mean, remember, 
1983, we Labour had a manifesto commitment to come out of the European Union. So things have changed very, very quickly. And I, I, um, when I became um, minister uh, in the Home Office, I went out to Brussels quite a lot with um, Jack Straw because I was doing the um, the Justice and Home Affairs part, which still didn't have majority voting then. And you would go out to the European Union and you would um, have a policy that you were to stick to. This is what we are going to support, um, whether it was on something to do with cooperation on policing or whatever. Um, and Jack would make a great speech in front of the European Council, how we we don't support this and we're going to do such and such. And then like there would be other support and lots of the ministers would come up and say things like, but, you know, we don't really agree with this either, but we are going to vote for it because, you know, we can ignore it or we'll just blah, blah. Um, and then we would get a call from um, the European, uh, uh, the UK government's uh, yuck rep, it was called, person who was in touch with everybody and in charge of everything. And he would say, oh, Downing Street and I think that you should support this because we're going to get something else over here. And it was this kind of always horse trading we horse trading we give you this and you give me and i thought that was shocking so having uh you know been very uh, uh, against the eu sort of being in there and seeing it in practice uh, as i think a lot of the new meps from the brexit party are now discovering i mean it is just you voted against maastricht didn't you i voted against maastricht um we had spent weeks and weeks debating maastricht labor had opposed it john smith was leading the charge on the last night when it came to the vote we were instructed to abstain you know, which was just a real cop-out. And so I think about 30 of us voted uh, against it. And um, then I campaigned to get a referendum on the Lisbon Treaty and, uh, you know, was absolutely delighted when we got the referendum. Um, I didn't expect David Cameron to come back with anything, but you never knew he might he might have got something back. And then we had the referendum and um, it, it, it seemed to me that that was going to be the culmination of my political career really I wanted to get us out and I still want to be out before I actually finish so I'm hoping we're out before there's a general election <laughs> but yes Brexit but, was very nasty but then but then you know Vauxhall is one of the most yep. remainy part of uh, parts of the country yeah. I guess isn't it Lambeth Lambeth overall is we never actually got the specifics for Vauxhall as ah. such but uh, I mean 78 percent or it something. probably wouldn't be as as great as Streatham. I think Streatham was 70. I mean, we, we don't really know the individuals, okay. but Lambeth as a whole was 77%. Simpson. But, you know, it's interesting because all the people who voted leave, mostly, I know, were people who were living on our estates and quite a lot of people from the Afro-Caribbean community because they did genuinely think that this would help. They're, you know, they have some terrible situations where they can't bring their relatives over in the summer, even for a holiday. They get... they get But yet they saw people coming in from, you know, all over the EU without any links with our country. So it was about a fair immigration system. Well, I, 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 that, um, that chimes with me. I mean, I spent a lot of... Well, you know where my church mm. is. It's just... It's a road opposite yeah. your constituency. Mm -hmm. And I spent a lot of my time, before the Brexit thing, um, in the immigration courts, giving sort of testimonies for my parishioners and so forth like that, who who found it impossible to come over here. And this was before everybody was terribly exercised by this. And then suddenly the EU, the, the, the referendum comes along and everybody's terribly exercised by this. Why weren't they exercised before by by what was happening to, you know, black and Afro-Caribbean people coming over yes, here? Yes, I, I think, of course, I suppose if we wanted to be charitable, many of them didn't really understand it. But it, it just seemed shocking that someone was coming over for their, you know, their wedding of, of some of their relatives and, and we're not going to get in and this this led I think to a lot of and it was the same amongst many of the Asian community as well but la my part of Vauxhall and, and is, is full of people who are um, working in the public sector at senior levels, working in charitable institutions at senior levels the sort of, um, a lot of people who work in parliament live in the area it's changed so much over those 30 years and um, you know, London is is different. I mean, it just it just so many people did not get out of London during that referendum and and listen to people out of up in northern the north and Midlands to hear, you know, why they felt so angry 
that they knew they'd been left behind and they did blame the EU and there was justifiable reasons for doing that. But it was also a cry, wasn't it, for you know people wanting to say, look, we have fed up being not listened to. Um, so I, having done lots of rallies all over the north of England and, and in, in the Midlands, um, I, I just felt in my bones that there was a chance we could win. And, and uh, you thought we, you thought I did, that, uh... yes. In fact, I said so on Daily Politics and BBC on the, I think it was the Tuesday, or, no, the Monday before the referendum. Might have been a Tuesday. Anyway, we were on and and with the political editor of the Spectator and the political editor of the New Statesman, and she asked them what they thought was going to happen in two days and time, and um, they both said one more reluctantly than the other that they were pretty sure Remain was going to win. Polls were showing Remain, and I just came in and said, um, actually. I think you're wrong. I think Leave's going to win. And the reason you both think that is you don't get out of London enough. And I think that's where the media really didn't... They didn't want to listen. What you know? happened to the Labour Party on this issue? Because as you rightly say, you see a manifesto commitment. And the Labour Party, is, in my opinion, is still run, is still led by a Eurosceptic. Yeah. And, you know, someone I believe in his bones is a Leaver. Yeah, and... Uh, and has a brother who's a very active lever, as you probably know, yeah. Piers. But anyway, Jeremy, I think, has kept the faith as long as he could. Uh, he is now, he's been under huge pressure and he, ha- he hasn't been helped by, it seems, seeming like John McDonnell has switched completely, you know, because John's politics would be very much thinking ahead. You know, what will, how will we eventually get what we want, the kind of, brilliantly new changed country that he he goes on about and one of he you know he wants to get into power and he he seems to think and i think jeremy's been pushed by the um the majority of um members of the shadow cabinet perhaps who've more london centric or metropolitan centered who don't realize just how many labor seats there are that if we have to win in order to become... And now the official Labour position is apparently... It's, well, it's um, still a bit confusing, isn't it? <laughs> the, the, the constructive ambiguity has changed to being kind of um, uh, ambiguity that that uh, you tr- that is meant now to appeal to both sides. But it's... It doesn't I appeal it, to leave you know, us. I think it's a real... Uh, it, it, it is a, a very, very dangerous um, decision that they've taken to go against... Um, the referendum and to go for a re- to go for another referendum, but more importantly, to have the shadow foreign secretary actually say, "And we will campaign to remain." That is just like a, a you know a, a stab in the back of all those people, Labour supporters. I mean, one of the things that, that used to be attractive about the Labour parties is that it was a, an alliance between working class interests and middle class progressives. Mm-hmm. I get, I guess, and and one of the things that. Uh, I suppose this has happened in the States a bit as well, but that that alliance seems to have quite yeah. recently now been broken. And that seems to be very dangerous. The 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 group that you refer to as the sort of middle class um, um, managerial type people um, are now in the ascendancy. And um, a lot of the people who joined because of Jeremy, the younger Momentum members and people who joined... Um, I think haven't quite caught on to the fact yet that the party's actually in in control, really. Even though Jeremy's still still there, of of um, people who have have lost their roots. I mean, have lost the feeling of what Labour Party was about. And if it's not about actually helping and supporting and working with people who are at in many areas at the bottom of the pile, what is the point? I mean, we're we're just. I, I, I'm just so disappointed that we have moved so far away from the kind of values that I joined the party for and that despite all the troubles we went through with militant and so on there was still that core feeling that we were there for working class people and I don't think that's there anymore because of um, certainly a lot lot reduced because of um, some of the people who are running running the party and um, so in my analysis and and, and I'm, I'm only putting it to you this way because I think you're going to disagree with it mm-hmm. but Tony Blair was a key part of what what fell apart there for for me, but that wouldn't be the case for you, would it? Oh well, I I went off Tony Blair very quickly after okay. um, 
<laughs> after he appointed me. <laughs> uh, no, as I, um, I, I mean, the Home Office time, then I moved to be sports minister. And that was when I really knew that there were brilliant things we could have done with grassroots sport and, and sport in schools and never really got the support because there was this attitude amongst the Blairites that um, the only sport that was really worth supporting was football. And that because it, that was the working class sport therefore if you supported football you were getting the working class vote and yet they wouldn't do some you know very very basic things but also the, I mean the Iraq war was just you couldn't have supported Tony Blair after that and I remember on that day sitting genuinely not having made up my mind although pretty sure I was going to vote against and having calls coming in and Jack Straw coming trying to get to talk to you and Tony Blair asking to see you and all this pressure that was put on you and I just sat there and I just, when it, the boat came, I just knew it was the wrong, you know, we could not, I could not support that war. Um, Hero, you no, are. No, yeah, well, I mean, there were, <laughs> but there were, you know, this is where I'm disappointed now that so many of my colleagues don't speak out on things. You know, I, I, I think, what is the point of being in politics? What is the point of being an MP if when you really don't agree with something, you're, you're kind of, you're, you're kind of kept quiet because of uh, career of the, prospects. Of the, of the Labour Party, is it, I, I noticed this the other day, of the Labour Party people who voted against the Iraq war, who are still in Parliament, there's quite a high percentage of you that are sort of levers and of a sort of levery <laughs> mindset. Well, yes, and I think, I think maybe people who are prepared to speak bullshit. out on something are prepared to speak out on other things. But, you know, what we are seeing now is a shift in some of my colleagues from leave areas with seats voted by big majorities who had kind of gone along with the Labour line on, well, you know, we'll, we'll, camp, we'll accept the result. But, you know, they didn't really want to and went along with some of these ridiculous votes that we had to try and stop Brexit are now speaking out and changing. And it's been very encouraging to see that some of them are actually saying look we'd like a deal we want to get a great relationship with the eu but if we don't we've got to get out and if it's a choice between no brexit and revoking article 50 they won't vote to revoke article 50 so i'm still hopefully confident that the labor party will enough of enough of those mp's and enough of um, our supporters out there in the country will did you think an- boris might do it i'm prepared to to give to, to give him the the benefit of the doubt at the moment, I think there's an awful lot of people who've supported him very much on the on the on the grounds that they really feel he can, he if anyone can get us out on the 31st of October. I saw him on operation obviously at City Hall because he he brought me in and I that was very controversial. He asked me to do this sports work, City Hall unpaid of course, but really we set up sports unit. We got. Directly, I said, I'm not doing it unless we've got some ring fence money. We got some ring fence money, and we started to really get things going amongst grassroots and change things at local level. And I saw Boris, and what Boris is very good at. First of all, he's he's not he's not um, tribal. You know, he he really will work with people if he thinks that they've got to do what he would like and that are good. So I think, and he surrounded himself with a very good team at City Hall, and I think he'll do that again. The first thing he'll do will be presumably get a really good chief of staff. I mean, I expect he'll bring in Sir Edward Lister, who looked after his... Oh, I know him, and yes. he, he's He's a good guy. You know, he's steady, and, and he'll bring in people who he... You know, uh, who weren't? I mean, Manira Mirza was brought in uh, at one stage, and I don't know whether she'll she'll come back. There, there are a lot of people who who he worked with who are good. So I'm hopeful, uh, but I think if he doesn't take us out, um, then he's not going to be there very long. And also, we will need a general election. Politics is all up in the air. It's a, it's it's it. You Have know, you ever known it to no, be this fluid? It's a, it's a, there's always been that feeling that. Whatever happened, people would either vote Labour or they'd vote Conservative. As a few voting Lib Dem. Now we're in a flux where, quite honestly, if we're not out, then the Brexit party will do extremely well in some of those leave leave areas and the Lib Dems will do, do very well too. And um, I think Labour will probably in the end do, do worse than the Conservative side. I mean, it's terrible given how far ahead we were at one stage and how popular Jeremy was 
how we've allowed the issue of the EU to destroy all that. And there was no need for it because the people had been given the mandate. You will decide. They didn't have leave. We will only leave with no deal on the table. No. Or we will only leave with a deal. It was simply leave. And, and you have to you have to blame. I mean, Fred, we do have to blame the Prime Minister. She may have tried very hard, but she didn't. She wasn't tough enough. You, you, you got quite a lot of stick for sort of sitting on, I mean, all this rubbish. I mean, I'm um, sorry, but I mean, you get quite a lot of stick for sort of sitting on uh, platforms with Nigel Farage. And personally, I don't understand this business about people uh, getting criticised for sitting next to other people but and like talking on the same side when they have alliances. But you get a lot, get a lot of stick yeah, for Yeah, I that. did. I took, I mean, I, I, I mean... Sorry, that wasn't the a hate, very searching question. The hate, <laughs> no, but the hatred of, of uh, and venom against someone like Nigel Farage is, is actually quite frightening because, uh, you know, he did he did say some things that I wouldn't have said in the right same way or agreed with. But, you know, he is not a racist. Uh, but then that word is now used far, far, far too glibly, just as the word fascist is used far, far too glibly. I mean, to be calling people who voted leave... In, in working class areas, uh, fascists is is shocking, and that you know it's happening all the time. But I, I uh, the first time I appeared with him was actually uh, the, the thing that really got people was the fishing. I'd gone to speak to some fishing groups up in Scotland, and they were bringing down these boats, and the um, Leave campaign was involved, and they said you will come on our boat, and I said yes, and the boat that everyone was going on, obviously Nigel was on it, and of course the photographers were on it. They were absolutely desperate to get a picture of um, the two of us together and I, initially I sort of thought I'm just going to sort of you know always and then I thought this is ridiculous so then I, we all, we almost did the Titanic shot you know both up on the bar <laughs> <laughs> and then and oh then no in the that, la- puts a, that puts a whole image into my and then, then the 2017 election, um, the Lib Dem candidate in my constituency was a complete ardent Remainer and they spent the whole campaign attacking me and every single leaflet they put out had a picture of me with Nigel Farage and when it first started the first week, I I thought every time I'd go to a door, people would be saying, oh, you appeared with Nigel Farage. How? And actually, I know it sounds like and people say, oh, don't, I don't believe it, but people would be on the streets sometimes, people would be saying... Oh, you know Nigel Farage, <laughs> and uh, then my majority went up to twenty thousand. So I, um, I didn't. But it, it was a nasty campaign, I have to say, from the Lib Dems because, and so much so that I got some even very decent Lib Dems say to me, "Look, Kate, you know we're really sorry for the way they've conducted this campaign. They weren't interested in anything else other than Brexit." Um, but that was kind. Of, no, I, I have, I make no apology for appearing with Nigel, and um, I. Uh, you know, we would not be where we were in terms of getting out of the EU, I think, without, without him. I, one, one of the things that's so impressive about you, Kate, is you're wonderfully sure of your... your convi- I mean, you're, you have a sort of... There's a nub of uh, certainty about things. No, not just certainty, because you ask yourself questions. I, but, I mean, there's, there's a sort of conviction there. And so forth. Yeah. I'm trying to work out where that comes from, where that's like... That. Well, I, I suppose, you know, it gets, again, from... I mean, I, I suppose you could you could argue that I'm you know I'm I'm big headed then because I'm sort of too sure of myself, but I'm not you know sure of myself in in lots of other areas. But on the EU, I'm very confident because that's always been how I've felt. And um, I'm I, my my, uh, my parents were quite principled too. You know, they they had a view that. Um, you know, you didn't you didn't let people down. Um, this whole idea of of um, not not owing anybody anything. I mean, when I first got my first sort of mortgage, having worked my way up from a bedsit to a one bedroom to a renting, and then buying my first house in in Hackney, I um, they were you know my father thought it was dreadful that you owed money. You know he couldn't believe in those days that you could owe <clears> money. So I I don't know I've I've I don't. Analyze myself too much. You would, no, no, you I'm, like. <laughs> no, no, I'm, right. a, I'm an analyzer, I know, and I can I, see that you don't. And there's a strength in the fact that, well, that people don't. I think like I it. think you can you can worry too much. You know, it doesn't mean that I haven't been terribly unhappy at times, and and you know, thinking what is what, is this worth it? Um, but then you find somebody in you know comes to your surgery and they've been treated shockingly and they're got they're losing their flat because of something that wasn't anything to do with them and their whole and you you were able to help 
and you get a, a success in that. And do you feel it's been worthwhile? Hated by Lib Dems and by foxes. Uh, yes. Well, again, you see, that was my sort of libertarian streak. Um, and also because I understood that animals have to be, man- it has to be wildlife management. Otherwise, we'd run riot. Um, and, the, and and they'd run riot. And I um, have never, I've never understood, um, I think there was, a, it was, if people were really arguing the case against hunting foxes uh, genuinely on the animal welfare issue, then we could argue that because actually a, a fox is killed instantly. And if you if they've actually studied foxes where when it's been chased for a very long time and then it dis- it, it, it gets away and like a minute later it'll be sitting calmly, you know, brushing itself and being quite, you know, it's it's a natural instinct, the whole thing. So it's, and when it's killed instantly, but shooting can be really dreadful because if the fox is half shot and it dies a sort of lingering death, people always think there's, I think some of the animal rights people think there's hospices in, in the forest, you know, for the animal to die peacefully. So hunting, and but it's mainly the fact that people were against it on a class thing that annoyed me. Right. Because actually, we used to have miners' hunts. There are a lot of working class people follow the hunts in different areas. And I just find the whole... I think if you're going to ban something, you have to be absolutely clear that it is really causing uh, a danger to p- other people. Uh, I just didn't feel that that was something I wanted. Is there a sort of... Is there a sort of part of the opposition to it is also that it feels like some people take a sort of pleasure in in the yes I, in the mm-hmm. cruelty in it, it, yes well well yes you i mean I, I actually don't think it's necessarily cruel okay but but, but but i know what you mean but the point is yes a lot of people enjoy going out with the hunt they're usually miles away when the fox actually is killed but also you know in those rural communities Maybe not so much now with social media, but in, in, in you know, past times, there wasn't a lot of activities, a lot of social activity. And hunting was the the kind of fabric that brought everything together. And, the, the, the you know, the, the fundraising, the kennels, the people who then looked after the, the hounds during the not off, off season, walking, walking the puppies, all of that. You know, there's this interesting thing, but nobody was really interested so, in that. So here's a conundrum talking to you, is that on one hand... And there are too many foxes in city, inner cities Oh, as tell well. me about that. I completely... <laughs> I could, that that I'm, I not, completely I'm not introducing a hunt. I, there's not a Vauxhall hunt no. coming. There's thousands of them around where I live. Um, but here's a slight conundrum. Sometimes I listen to you and you've just described yourself, you've described a libertarian streak and you and you do have a libertarian streak. And then sometimes I listen to you and I hear a communitarian type of, you know, the way in which you just described yeah. the, the, the community of fox hunting all coming together. And there's that that's really interesting. And I... I um, can can I draw you on a more philosophical sort of issue about the, you know, the libertarian versus the communitarian in you? Well, do they have to be contradictory in some uh, some cases? I don't, I'm not sure. Um, I mean, I suppose other people have said I'm a libertarian. I didn't sort of wake up one morning and say I'm a libertarian. It's it's just I I I like the idea that if people are doing things that they enjoy and it's not causing harm to other people. In, um, or potentially causing harm, then then why would the state want to ban it? You know, I'm I'm I I I find that what happens in in say and you always take I always take it back to councils, but you get some very good people working in councils, but they're part of of a sort of system that there is a way of doing it. And if you if you as your local resident fall out of line in the sense that you do it slightly differently. Then they they tackle you, and I I I suppose freedom to me is is being able to think freely and then be able to do things that you you want to do without being you know hurting anyone else. Having the lighting you want. <laughs> well, that 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 yes, I'm not sure my whole career was bound on that letter that was written about elitist lighting, but quite important. Well, that, so now you're um, you, you've announced that you're stepping down. I imagine with some relief. Well, I, we, we had we had to make a decision, that, you know, because they want in case there's an autumn election, which I don't think there may well not be. But uh, so I, yes, I, I, uh, I, um, uh, I'm sure there were absolute um, toasts going on in Vauxhall from among my party activists. I have a lot of very nice letters from. Uh, 
uh, inverted commas, ordinary members who are not activists um, and from, oh, so many of the tenants groups and friends groups and campaign groups. And they, some of them, I think, think I'm like going tomorrow. So I have to sort of say, no, I'm still there. Don't worry. Until I go, I'll still be fighting carrying on and I will look with interest at what happens in, in Vauxhall I think it might well be that it's not such a safe Labour seat as people think Could you leave the Labour Party? The Labour Party is, is gradually leaving me at the moment with some of the um, things they're doing you know, on the EU and I do feel so strongly about that but I, I've, I'm still hopeful that um, it, Labour just won't go that very big step forward of actually becoming a total Remain party um, and I would find that difficult but I would rather not have to leave the Labour Party because I've been in it for so long yeah, I, I understand there's a sort of tribal thing yeah, and that, I'm, I'm actually very loyal and you know, this will sound shocking to some people, I'm actually quite loyal to Jeremy in, in, in my own way because I've known him for a very long time and um, I think he is a good person in, and he wants to do the right thing and he has been, Brexit has been used by those people who wanted him out from the beginning. I was one of the 42 who didn't vote against him so early on. And he's just been um, that. And probably a little bit of the anti-Semitic stuff as well, although that is shocking if anyone who's involved in that should be out. But I think some of that's been used as well. So I have a bit of sympathy for Jeremy. And um, I would hope that the party doesn't move so far away from me that... It's not so much that I'm leaving as it has left me. Your natural base feels to me a little bit like the STP or the New Look STP. The, yeah, the New Look STP is interesting. I don't know an awful lot about it yet. Uh, I mean, they've, they've, they've. Um, have you been looking at some of their policies? Yeah. A new declaration. The, I, I think read? the I think the problem is their name. <laughs> yes. I think they should have because it's somehow you know the SDP doesn't very retro. Yeah, yeah it's very yeah. And it sort of I remember that time and uh, yes, people like um, it was Dick Tavern cost me my seat in Dulwich. I think yeah, so. Yeah. I, but there's there's something of the Owenite about you. Is there? Yeah. I yeah. Well, think. he of course became a great anti-EU yeah. person as well. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, but you know, there's interesting. I I I um I do have a lot of friends who are in the Brexit party. I determined not to go around calling it a fascist right-wing party, which some people would like to do. Uh, and um, I thought that was rather ironic, you know, from somebody, I, I had a cup of tea with Richard Tice, who used to be the chief exec of CLS Holdings in Vauxhall. So he was oh, been there be for a very long time. Well, it was. It was oh, in was the it? Sunday Mirror on oh, Sunday that, I was, um, that I'd been seen having a cup of tea. So I was going to tweet and say, well, I'm having a cup of tea tomorrow with the Conservative, leading Conservative. Are you going to write now that I'm joining <laughs> the Conservative Party? No, we'll see what happens. Do you have plans um, for... Do you have, do you, are you well, going to retire? Would that be the right Well, word I don't or? know. I... I, I People keep talking to me about why aren't you writing a book? Because I, you know, did all the Zimbabwe stuff, and I had yes. a lot of stuff about the anti-cannabis uh, campaign in Lambeth, and you know, I've done some interesting things, but I'm not sure I've got the uh, what is it you need to write a book? Lots of lots of perseverance and ego, ego, and <laughs> ego. All oh, right, okay, well, but I, I've got lots of things I haven't done, and I have more time to do um, when I stop. But I don't think I'll I'll be completely. Um, moving away from politics and you never know what will happen. I don't think you will either. Kate Howie, thank you very much indeed. Thank Thank you, you, Kate. Thank you for listening to this episode of Confessions with me, Giles Fraser. If you're enjoying the podcast, please do rate and review it and do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'll be joined by another guest next week for another episode of Soul Bearing and I do hope you'll tune in then. And do check out the website, unheard.com. Listener.